Welcome to Virtual Sentiments. This is your host, Kristen Collins, and I'm really excited to share today's episode, a conversation with Leilani Gilpin, an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Leilani is a computer scientist and her work specializes in creating self-explaining machines. Leilani talks a lot about autonomous vehicles, like self-driving cars, and problems like what happens when there is an accident and the need to develop self-explaining machines so that they might be able to not only provide testimony as to what went wrong, why did it make the choice that it made, but so that this self-explanation might also help it learn and improve. I think that this conversation will really be particularly pertinent right now because we've seen since the time that we recorded this in the fall, a huge proliferation of various artificial intelligence programs that people in the public have been playing around with without necessarily knowing that much about the way that these machines work, the way that artificial intelligence works, what intelligence means in this context and the limits of artificial intelligence, even as it continuously develops. And Lalani has a lot of important insights and thoughts and reflections on the complexity of creating these technologies in an uncertain world, in a complicated world, with one in which we need to be thinking about concerns like fairness, bias, and potential harms to, and real harms that have already happened in the world with with respect to these machines. So I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation. Today we're talking with Professor Leilani Gilpin. She is an assistant professor in computer science and engineering and an affiliate of the Science and Justice Research Center at UC Santa Cruz. Thanks for joining us today, Leilani. Thanks for having me. I was hoping you could start us off by telling us a little bit about your work on artificial intelligence and issues specifically of accountability and what you refer to as self-explaining machines. Yeah, absolutely. So my technical research area is in explanatory artificial intelligence. So I work on creating models that can explain what these opaque black box AI tools are doing. And in particular, I work on that for complex systems like self-driving cars. So I work on systems that are built out of multiple parts. And what that means is that some parts might do the same job. Like, for example, in a self-driving car, you might have several cameras that are perceiving the world. And sometimes they agree and sometimes they disagree. And so I use explanations as sort of an internal language that they can communicate and figure out which ones to trust and not. And the types of explanations that I develop can also be used for things like accountability and liability. So if, and it's already happened, but if a self-driving car gets in an accident, then how can it defend itself, uh, particularly in something like an adversarial proceeding? So is there a way that the car can actually defend itself? Can it say what happened? Can it say when it was unsure? And then can it use that in more of a legal language, not just a sort of internal computer language? Yeah, and that seems, as you said, it's already happened that these these issues have come up. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe shed a little light then on the way that the kind of policy landscape and uh, legal landscape shapes then what you're thinking about when you're designing these uh, explanatory systems. 
Yeah, that's a really great question. So I should sort of preface that with the fact that I haven't talked to a lot of lawyers or policymakers recently. Um, but, you know, it's a very hot topic, self-driving car liability. In general, AI liability and regulation and what happens when these systems make mistakes. Largely, these systems do not have the ability to explain themselves. And that becomes a very difficult task for lawmakers, for attorneys, for anyone caring about liability. In fact, if you look what happened in the Uber self-driving car accident, um, which was in 2018, it was the first um, pedestrian fatality by a fully self-driving car, at least leading up to the accident. It took, I think, up to six months for them to figure out what actually happened. And that's because they didn't have any explanation capability. They don't log the data in ways that they should. And so, you know, largely what this is becoming is a very long process of sort of trying to understand what these systems are doing. And largely the work that I'm trying to do with my colleagues and with my students in my lab is trying to make this process almost automatic so that they're explainable by design. So when they get in an accident, you have a very similar conversation to what happens when we get into car accidents where you go in and you say, oh, well, I didn't see you and you create this testimony. What if the car could do that automatically? Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, as you said, I mean, that's something that people have been talking a lot about in artificial intelligence and algorithmic decision making in general, that often these are black box systems. So, uh, you know, I, I could imagine that this having wide appeal beyond autom autonomous vehicles, even if that's maybe one of the more striking cases. So uh, sometimes when people talk about autonomous vehicles, they suggest that whatever risks there are um, are ultimately outweighed, and this is maybe a consequentialist framing, that traffic accidents are such a, a leading cause of deaths. So if you create more self-driving cars, you should be able to minimize the role of human error that is already causing fatalities. Do you find that to be a useful framework, or is there something missing when we, we treat it in those terms? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, there are pros and cons to thinking about it in that way. I think if we can decrease the amount of deaths that are occurring on the roadways, I mean, of course, that would be a huge benefit to society. At the same time, what if we don't know which people are more at risk? And I think that's one of the big problems. For example, it's been shown that computer vision tools like, you know, those that are doing face detection are better at detecting people with lighter skin tones than those with darker skin tones. That same technology is then put on a self-driving car. That becomes that the self-driving car is better at detecting pedestrians with lighter skin tones than those of darker skin tones. And it just becomes, you know, a, a huge issue of bias and fairness in these safety-critical, mission-critical systems. The other thing is, I think, while there is a big promise of self-driving cars either being more safe or saving more lives at the same time that comes with a huge technical cost for example if you look at where self-driving cars are being tested they're largely being tested off-road in individual environments in a very well-connected system there's no issues of you know wi-fi wi issues or, or sensors being um, harmed in any sh way shape or form you know we're not guaranteed to have that if they're on the freeway with thousands of drivers. And so I think largely it would be great if we could, you know, make driving safer for everybody. But at the same time, I think there's a societal risk with bias. And there's also a technical risk that a lot of people aren't thinking about um, that we need for these systems to 
work at their best level. Right. I think that's that's so well said. And I appreciate that topic of bias in AI has come up in a few different conversations we had. And how I think you've put it is that there is a larger societal history of bias that is shaping the design of technologies and the data collection that is used to design technologies. Um, and so even if it's unintentional, you're embedding certain prejudices that will end up having disproportionate consequences for different members of the population were this to be applied in a widespread manner, these aut autonomous vehicles. Could you explain more, a little bit more about that technical side of the equation, the idea that there are a lot of challenges to building the kind of computer vision models and other decision-making models that a self-driving car would need to actually be uh, adopted by people in their ordinary lives and as a widespread technology. Yeah, so I can give a couple examples of that. And again, a little bit of a disclaimer, I'm not a computer vision expert, but the way that a lot of these computer vision algorithms work is very differently than the way that we perceive the world. So when we look at the world, we see, you know, different objects, like I can, you know, look at you and say that I'm talking to someone who's wearing glasses. But if a computer vision system is, is seeing that same image, they're doing and understanding everything at the pixel level. So there's no higher level representation, although some people argue that some of these um, deep neural net structures do embed these types of representations. Largely, they're looking at things as basically a pixel mapping and they're trying to assign that to some higher level label. Um, the problem with that is that there's largely no common sense attached to these systems. So take for example, if you are driving and you see a skateboard crossing the street, the first thing that I think is that there's going to be a bunch of young kids that are coming. So I'm automatically stopping and saying, okay, I know that there's at least one kid, if not parents, if not other kids that are about to run across the street. A self-driving car doesn't know that at all. It just knows that that's a skateboard. And it knows that it might be something it should stop for. So while these systems can be very accurate at these small tasks, like detecting if the object is a car or a truck or a person or a small child, they're not very good at sort of connecting these to critical situations. Um, at the same time, there are also some huge technical challenges with other types of um, perception or visionary systems like LIDAR or radar, which is that they're extremely computationally intensive to um, detect different things. So, for example, LIDAR is actually very um, accurate in a lot of the self-driving car accidents that you've seen. LIDAR had detected people with enough time to stop. But it's very expensive to classify that data. It's very noisy. If there's a little bit of sun that's sort of going into the LIDAR, it won't detect anything. Snow, rain, same thing. So there's a lot of technical challenges that, that are basically not well aligned to the challenges we have as human drivers. And that's why it makes it so difficult to debug these systems and to give any types of safety guarantees because they are perceiving the world in a very different way, and they're doing it at a very different speed than the ways humans do. Yeah, and would you, that that is an excellent summary of very difficult uh, technical details here. And I was thinking, what it came to mind for me is that when you're describing the way a car versus a human being might interpret this as somebody on a skateboard rolling into a street or just the skateboard itself, um, 
I was thinking about, it seems like there's maybe an issue with interpreting details in terms of broader context. Is, is that kind mm-hmm. of how you would put it? Oh, absolutely. There's a huge problem with broader context. And even if you, you know, one of the things that I work on in my research is how do we represent safety rules in a way that a self-driving car can understand, right? The problem with creating rules is there's always an exception, right? So even if you tell the car it has to stop at a red light, what happens if there's an ambulance behind it, right? I mean, obviously then you should veer out of the way and let them pass. Um, but there's there's a huge problem here with like, what is the right context to give to them? If you want to give them you know, strict rules to abide, then how do you deal with the consequences or the corner cases that arise? If you create you know, a set of rules, there's always uh, corner cases you have to represent. So it becomes a, a laundry list of, you know, thinking about the right knowledge, thinking about the right rules, and then thinking about, you know, once you have that knowledge, how do you even apply it? Like to, you know, uh, you alluded back to the skateboard example, the types of behaviors we would see in the area that we'd see a bunch of kids with a skateboard is very different than what we'd see in a freeway. When does the self-driving car know that it's on a freeway versus a, you know, a a street with pedestrians and frankly sometimes they're right next to each other and the mapping might not um, be able to detect it so there are lots of different ways that these systems can fail or um, go wrong even if they do have this contextual information yeah and i think you brought up this idea of implementing and following rules and how the way that we make judgments as human beings are often so contextualized and so sensitive to various details. That doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes, but it does mean that, you know, as much as our society lives by rules, it's not reducible to rules either. Um, How does, how does a self-explaining or even any kind of artificial intelligence system make judgments? Uh, Is it different from human beings? Is it inherently going to be more rule-based or is that something that is also changing with the development of neural networks and various technologies? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, I I think this is a big debate in artificial intelligence in general, which is these large data-driven systems versus these symbolic systems that are able to do things, like you said, learn from context and learn from rules. And largely they're speaking very different languages. So if you have a self-driving car that's largely learning by some data-driven system, the way that it's making decisions is it's basically picking the best decision that it got from its neural net or its classifier. And that's largely a probability. So it'll say, oh, I, I feel 80% sure that I should make a right turn. And that is what it does. And it largely has no reasoning attached to it. On the contrary, like you were saying, these rule-based systems, they actually have the ability to explain how they got there. You can say, oh, I, you know, I was following the map and the map said I'm making a right turn, so that's what I'm going to do. But at the same time, they have this issue with what do they do with uncertainty? It's very difficult to represent uncertainty in these semantic systems, these rule-based systems, because they're basically logical systems. And there are some logics that can represent uncertainty, but that's another point. Um, I think one of the big areas of research, at least that I'm working on and other people in the field, is how do we sort of combine these systems, especially to deal with safety critical systems. But there's a lot of problems with that. One is that the deep learning systems that are doing this, they're either black boxes in the way that the model is not understandable, or the more common approach, which is that they're trade secrets. So a lot of the self-driving car companies, for good reason, 
keep the algorithms that they're using as internal as trade secret. So we won't even be able to know what they're doing. So we can't explain them. Um, so I think this is this is a really big challenge. Um, and I think a lot of people are getting very close to it. There's been a lot of work on common sense plus neural nets or sort of neural symbolic reasoning, but we still have a large way to go, especially with application-driven work like self-driving cars. We see sometimes sensationalized stories um, about these very real and, and very concerning issues with respect to safety and liability. And it, it brought me to thinking, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that you've seen in the broader public for talking about either autonomous vehicles or other artificial intelligence systems? Um, and conversely, also, uh, and it, you can take these one at a time, but are there any kind of misconceptions you see among your fellow experts, um, whether people doing very similar to work to you or other technical uh, research and engineering research that is related to what you're working on as well? Yeah, great question. I mean, this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. So I think with regard to the sort of sensationalization of AI, this is something I always bring up in my classes. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that these systems are intelligent. I think a lot of these systems are largely doing pattern recognition, some form of memorization, and a bunch of fancy functions. They are, they are not intelligent in the way that we would describe intelligent machines, but I think the focus of the research is to create machines that could make intelligent choices. And I think a lot of times we see these sensationalized headlines, like one of my favorite is that AI, you know, they're, they turned off the AI machine at one of these tech companies because it was sentient. And, you know, I see those and, and I think, I mean, I'm very sure the machine was not sentient. The machine was just probably taking a bunch of compute power and putting out garbage results. And a lot of people don't know that. And I think it's, I think it can be very scary when people don't understand that a lot of these systems are just math and a lot of data. And there's not a lot of intelligence. They're not making their own decisions. They are making predictions and those predictions are acted upon. But with that, that is scary, right? Because we have this complicated math no one understands. And then we have these predictions that were previously entrusted to humans, but now they're not explainable. So I think in one way, it's good that we we kind of create a little bit of fear around these systems because you know, there are huge issues of safety and liability, but at the same time, calling a machine sentient is a little bit silly. Um, to your second question, which was about, you know, misconceptions around research groups and possibly my peers, um, I think the biggest one is the actual technical word explanation. I think as humans, we have an idea of what an explanation is, right? I am explaining something to you. You acknowledge that you ask more questions. That is not the way that explanatory AI works. And yet everybody is calling any type of interpreted output and explanation. I think that work is extremely, extremely important. But the problem is, is we're using explanation as a, um, what Marvin Minsky used to call a suitcase word. It's a word that has a lot of meanings. And there's a big false promise of explainability. This has been shown by many of my peers. And I think where the research really needs to go is thinking about explanations at different levels and how do we ultimately create an explanation that can be used by end users and lay persons. So 
they're, you know, this happens all the time and I don't blame anybody. I think that this is fantastic work all around, but I think at the same time, you know, when people say that they're creating explanations for complex systems and it's, you know, what is a largely a heat map, it's sort of focused, it's pointing at the part of the image that is important. That's not really an explanation that could be used in an adversarial proceeding. So. No, I, I, those are excellent points and I want to kind of dive deeper into them because I think that that's such an important conversation that everybody should be having and really does require kind of bridging the people who are working on these systems and then the public who, you know, as I think citizens, as, as members of this community, you know, have a right to be thinking about and trying to understand uh, these, the both the kind of positive possibilities, but then also the risks. Um, and so I wanted to ask if you would mind giving a little bit more detail on kind of why we shouldn't think of artificial intelligence systems as having the same kind of intelligence that we think of as human beings having. And, and you, you did do a great job explaining the nature of their intelligence, but maybe could you give like an example of something that the way that we perceive and judge and move through the world that seems to be difficult to replicate or approximate uh, in an artificial intelligence system? Yeah, that's a really good, um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the first thing that I'm thinking of is that, for example, computer vision systems can't do, um, uh, what are they called when you look, when you look at a picture and it has something oh, behind optical it? Optical illusions. Oh. Yeah, so they can't of, understand yeah. optical illusion, right? You could argue that's not necessarily intelligent, right? But that's a, that's something that we can do because we're looking at the full picture. And these systems are not. They're looking at everything at the pixel level, so they can't understand these optical illusions. I think um, I think there was one paper that might have gotten close for a couple of those, but in general, this capability doesn't exist. I think the other thing that is really fascinating is that in machine translation, so in systems that are automatically translating different languages, they don't understand colloquial language, right? They're trained on large data sets, which means they only know the data they've seen before, and they can't abstract in the ways that humans can, right? If you learn a metaphor in one language, that doesn't necessarily translate to another language. And that's something that computers and AI tools still cannot understand. And I think that's actually kind of getting to the key of what does it mean to learn a language is if you can speak, speak it colloquially, and sort of use the sorts of metaphors and analogies that they use in different languages. Um, some other difficult things that these computers can't do well, I will say, is sort of infer behaviors from opponents in game playing. Um, a very historical challenge in AI has been AIs that can play different games. And in fact, they can do very, very well on a multitude of different games. I worked at Sony AI where we beat some of the world's experts on Gran Turismo. But again, they're largely doing pattern recognition. They're not inferring, oh, I'm, you know, they're playing chess. Oh, I'm playing a defensive opponent right now. Then I better take an offensive move or move. That's not something that they do. And I think that those are largely kind of skills that we develop as people. And AI still hasn't gotten there because of this abstraction barrier. They can't sort of abstract or find 
similar things. And at the same time, they also don't have the types of representations that they need to be able to do that. They're largely things that are kind of inherent to either the way we learn language or the way that we learn to play both with people and to play games. Yeah. So then how does, when we think, you know, in very kind of far off scenarios, um, does it seem like it's unlikely that, or at least there is some limit to how much machines can totally supplant human labor and human direct directives um, in a way in which we have to be cooperating and um, very thoughtful about our own responsibility when we are designing or implementing uh, technologies like these, uh, even these self-explaining machines that you're working on. Oh, absolutely. And I think actually beyond the technical scope, it's largely about the societal scope. I think we've shown that robots are better than humans at a lot of tasks, including, you know, robots doing surgery for high precision tasks are better than humans. But I think we largely, we, we want a human to do it because that makes us more comfortable. I think that we've shown that a lot of sort of low skilled labor we can do with robots or with different types of machines. But I think there's a lot of human to human interaction that people want, even if the machines are better. Um, there's one speaker, oh, I forget his name, saying that we're going to have separate roads for people who like to drive to go, and then there will be the self-driving car roads. I think that a lot of these technologies that people are really worried about, like robot doctors and things like that, I think that society just doesn't want it. Like I know for myself, I always want to speak to a doctor and see them face to face. And I think that a lot of the population feels the same way. Same with lawyers. I think that that's, that's another tactic where we can learn from the law very easily with machine learning, but people still want to have that person-to-person interaction. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I mean, it seems to me part of the issue is the importance of trust that we can develop with other people. Um, Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that and why there's such a big difference for us between being face-to-face with another person versus um, working with machine? Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it is about trust. I think a lot of it is the society that we were raised in. Like we've seen, you know, maybe in, you know, generations, next generations are going to be so used to computers, they don't ever want to see a doctor. But I think the way that we grew up is we grew up in a way that was very comfortable with seeing and interacting with people. I think that, you know, COVID's a good example of, you know, what happens when we kind of basically uh, create a a deterrent in that. But I think a lot of it is based on behaviors. And to your point, I think a lot of it is also based on trust, which is that a doctor can go to you and say, you know, actually, I think that this is, this is COVID because of these symptoms, because you've had a fever for three days, whereas an AI can't always say it, although we're trying to create that. But again, where, where is the trust? We can sort of read a person and see do we think that they're trustworthy or not? And we don't have that perception right now, at least for machines and artificial intelligence. Yeah, no. And I, that kind of gets us to the other detail I wanted to dive a little bit more deeply into, which even though you've been giving very uh, lucid, very clear explanations, um, but is that is the concept of ex- explanatory or self-explaining features in systems. So you know, what is it that is unique about the way that human beings explain themselves, um, even if 
you know, I think there, I think the thing is, it's always interesting talking about machines and humans because I think it seems like in some ways studying or talking about artificial intelligence does end up kind of illuminating com- complexities of what we take for granted in terms of our interactions. So people all the time can kind of retroactively justify um, and rationalize decisions, but it's not necessarily, when they do so, may not be actually the explanation for why they did what they did. Um, and yet, at the same time, it seems like there's some limit to uh, machines being able to be necessarily uh, better in terms of offering a better, you know, more straightforward explanation at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think there are sort of two pieces to that. So I think there's thinking about the explanation of one person to another, which is largely an argument, although not necessarily a adversarial one. And then there's the idea of self-explanation, which is actually how a lot of people learn. So when I explain something you know, to you, we've just met, I would explain it in a very different way than I would explain it to my partner or one of my best friends. So I think one thing is thinking about that context, the fact that there's not one explanation for why I had cereal for breakfast. There are many different explanations that apply in many different scenarios, depending on the context, how well I know the other party, et cetera. The other part of that is there is a conversation about it. If I tell you that I work on explanatory AI, you are able to question that. I can explain back. And that conversation is actually the explanation. It's not just what I say as a one-off. It's thinking about how we go back and forth. That's how we develop an explanation. That's how we build trust as people. That's how we get to know each other. And that's not the way that machines do it, right? A machine provides a rationale, but it can't be questioned. We don't know how sensitive it is. We don't know the context of which it got that explanation. So that's sort of thinking about the sort of person to person or machine to person explanation. And largely a lot of the work in my group is thinking about how do we facilitate that argumentation for complex systems? Um, the other part of my work, which I'm very excited about, but haven't gotten, um, haven't gotten a lot of people to work on yet, is this idea of learning through self-explanation. And this, again, is inspired by the way that we as people learn. Um, when we learn to drive, at least when I learned to drive, a lot of learning what to do in these corner cases was explaining to myself what I was perceiving and what I thought was right, and then using that explanation to figure out what to do next. I'll sort of give an example. So, um, and I, I give this example in a lot of my talks. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I was in a very large parking structure, um, very narrow, and someone came in very quickly and flashed their high beams at me in the opposite direction. I had read the vehicle handbook. I knew that flashing high beams meant that I should turn on my lights, but it didn't make sense. It was a well, you know, it was a well lit parking structure, right? This is my self-explanation. It's well lit. I, I can't think of a reason I should turn on my high beams. Why would this person be alerting me of that? And then I realized that it's actually a warning symbol because they are going quickly because they're speeding past me. And this is how we learn from experience. Again, not something that computers do yet. And I think that thinking about explanations in these ways as more complex ways of learning is really going to push the field a little bit further. That points to the importance of you know having people, maybe people who aren't even necessarily originally involved in the original design, being able to evaluate and 
you know, assess and, and figure out and kind of give feedback on, okay, actually, you know, we understand we tried our best to avoid this problem, but we're still seeing it for these reasons. Uh, let's think about like how, what, what are some other ways around this? So I guess sometimes I guess this is the idea of, you know, auditing within uh, companies or labs. Um, is that kind of a, a key kind of tool for managing these various issues? Yeah, absolutely. The idea of auditing or the idea of having, you know, um, critical analysis that, again, is not necessarily based on an optimization or based on an accuracy, but based on can we study these results and see if there are any biased findings? Can we look at the, you know, the middle representations of the model and see critically, did we find issues of bias? And I think that a lot of these are things that people have studied in you know, critical race theory and the social sciences, even in some parts of literature, thinking about this. And those people are extremely important to creating, um, you know, trustworthy data science and AI systems. I think the other thing um, that I'm also excited about is thinking about ways that we can stress test these systems. And I, I'm, I've worked with people at Northwestern and Underwriters Laboratory of thinking about this, which is that, you know, we test different types of machines and houses for things before we're going to buy them, right? So like, you know, you do a big audit of a house before you make the purchase. Similarly with a car, they have all these crash tests and things. Why don't we do the same for AI systems? Why don't we create like, you know, a stress testing system for saying like, how biased is the system? Does it adhere to these ideas of fairness? How, you know, able is it to be fooled by different types of noise? And I think employing these types of tests instead of just saying, oh, it's 99% accurate, we're shipping it is, I think it'll create, you know, a better practice around doing better data science and doing better AI research. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I think it's great to kind of suggest these analogs too, that, you know, in other spheres of our our lives, we have already, um, you know, checks in place for figuring out similar uh, potential uh, unwanted consequences. Um, I guess any, any, and it's okay if you don't, um, you know, you, you, you don't have like a, something that comes into mind immediately for this. But I was kind of wondering, you know, is there a, a sort of history that you ever draw on, um, you know, examples from the past or, or even maybe not super far in the past, but of, of other industries or other um, uh, case studies that kind of inform your approach to these questions? Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe I, uh, not necessarily about the, the bias issue. I think that there's, um, I will say there's a lot of scholars that are doing much better work um, on that. So I'll, I'll leave it to the experts. But I think in the thinking about autonomous vehicle safety, I'm always very inspired by what they've done in the airline industry. And, you know, several different parts from the technical perspective, everything has a backup. You know, we have backup engines, we have a, we have a backup pilot. We have, you know, every way that if one part of the systems fails, it will succeed. And in fact, in the very, very rare case that the plane crashes, the plane itself is made to keep everybody on board safe. Um, I should say I'm, I'm very scared of flying, but I think about that fact all the time. But the, you know, the other part is actually thinking about the safety of the pilot. It was shown 
that once they switch to English, and this is not a, you know, talking about English as the best language, but when they started to use English as a technical language with constant communication to people at the, um, you know, the destination airport with the pilot, when everyone was communicating, all of a sudden, the number of crashes went down drastically. We don't require that of self-driving cars, right? None of the parts are talking together at all. They're all doing numerical computations, they're combined together, and then a decision is made. If we force them to explain, I think that we'll start to make better decisions moving forward. And I think with that as well, we also need second pass checks. We need, we need a backup camera. We need, you know, better LIDAR systems. We need, you know, we have this for a lot of the mechanical mechanisms of the car, but not for a lot of the perception mechanisms of the car. So I'm largely very inspired by the airline industry. And I think that, you know, the improvements that they've made of safety throughout the years, even recently in the last 10 years, that is, that should be exactly what we should be doing. And unfortunately, the, doing those types of things is very expensive and we kind of need the, the, you know, we need the liability around it as well. So I think if we, if we think about it in that way and get um, auditors involved, I think that we'll, we'll start to get to the safety guarantees that we want. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really great example. And it really had not come to mind for me. But it, it's a great point, because I've often heard, I think that's a, you know, even if it's, I think it's very understandable to be afraid of flying. Um, but I, you know, often people respond by the very kind of rational, well, actually, you know, airplanes are much safer than cars, for example, um, in terms of like actual uh, rates of accidents and deaths. But um, what you've just pointed out is that that is something that was created. That is something that was affected by incentives and and uh, it worked on. And, and b- planes are built to ensure that safety. Um, and over the years with histories of cars as well, um, the rise of seatbelts and requiring seatbelts to be included in cars was really essential to reducing fatalities. Um, and we can imagine that, that that just shows us how we're always going to have to be thinking about um, you know, design. And again, that's going to be interacting with the kind of broader social framework. So we got brought up the idea of liability. So how does you know, liability in the past with kind of – and again, it's okay if um, – this is it on point for you, but like, are there examples of how liability has been structured and approached in the past that is informing how you are thinking about dealing with issues of liability with autonomous vehicles? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the issues with autonomous vehicles, there are there really aren't, you know, best practices for liability. A lot of lawyers have not thought, or maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm sure a lot of lawyers have thought about this problem, but there's not a lot of legal language to how we think about it. When I think about, you know, again, alluding to the sort of airline, when, um, and I forget the airline, but there's one um, airline that had several accidents in just a few years, and that's actually when they added this communication protocol, which I think is very interesting. I mean, they were put under audit. They were under strict scrutiny that it's, you know, either you change and you get safer or you're out. And Actually, this happened, right? This happened after the Uber self-driving car accident. They were, they stopped testing. I don't know if they were, you know, I don't know exactly what happened with the audited, but they went right back on the roads, I think a year later in Arizona. And I was actually shocked by that. And again, there were no real lessons learned. There were no liability laws that changed. And I think that we need to have those constructs in place. And I think if we don't do it soon, 
we're going to see more and more accidents and they're going to be completely unexplainable. And I think that a lot of that liability people worry or, or, or auditing can stifle innovation. And I do see that point. But at the same time, we're talking about safety, critical mission, critical tasks. We have multiple checks in many safety, critical, safety, critical systems like airlines in the military. We have them in other critical organizations, but I don't know why we haven't had that conversation yet for self-driving cars. Yeah, no, I think that's a, those are excellent points. And what would be your advice to anybody kind of working in policy and law and thinking about these issues, whether they're coming from you know a more uh, a place that, that is you know they're more they are more interested in what you're talking about and having liability versus you know those who are worried about the innovation issue. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is like I would I would love to chat with them. I have a lot of ideas, and I'm really you know I'm really excited to work with um, policymakers. I sat in the policy lab in my PhD, and I think it really influenced a lot of my work. The second thing I would say is we need to start to come up with what does the driving test look like for self driving cars, and that doesn't necessarily mean the driving test where you parallel park, but how are we going to, again, stress test or test these systems out there ready for the road? No one has really talked about that before. People have given what they think are recommendations or best practices, but I think we need to think about what are the legal ramifications if we don't do that and what do these tests start to look like? And I think that that's a very important interdisciplinary direction that I'm excited about. I think a lot of people are as well. Um, and I think, I hope the conversation will start, but I, I think starting to think with how do we assess humans and then how do we apply those to machines? I think that that is, that is excellent advice. And I'm, I will say, um, as much as I'm somebody who is, uh, wary of, you know, traffic accidents, um, I do also have a lot of worriedness around self-driving cars for various reasons. And so I will say that I am personally very relieved to have talked with you and to know how deeply you're thinking about these questions and issues and also how willing and able you are to communicate. Because as, as you said, with the airline example and with what you're trying to do with self-explanatory machines, communication seems to be so key to not only cooperation, but to learning and improving at the same time. So uh, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Lulana could give a masterclass in explaining these complicated technical concepts to a public audience. There's a few points that really stood out to me from this conversation. Leilani highlighted the limits of artificial intelligence and how the way that machines perceive and think might be different from the way that we think they think. <laughs> um, so the intelligence that we refer to uh, might be very complex um, and complex pattern recognition and based on a lot of data and complicated math. But something that machines struggle with is interpreting details with reference to a broader context. And that's something that human beings do quite readily and in intuitively often. And 
Weilani brought up that this is important because even though we often, as human beings, are making decisions on the basis of rules, we also will make exceptions based on context to those rules. And so that's something that machines struggle with is if they are making decisions with reference to rules uh, without being able to interpret details with reference to a broader context, it's a struggle to make those exceptions to those rules in the way that human beings might do so. And so something that Weilani is doing is also figuring out how to help machines be able to explain their actions to themselves, because that is also not only something that's useful for a potential adversarial liability proceeding, which is something that we might that comes to mind really readily for us. But I really appreciated what Leilani brought up, which is that self-explanations are some, th- some way that we learn, and so it can be a way that machines learn too. And so that self-explanation process might help improve that decision-making process as well. And what I also appreciated about the way that Leilani explained self-explanation as a learning process was she put it in dialogical terms that self-explanation isn't always this you know internal uh, or even if it is internal it can be dialogical but it's also something that we have a conversation with somebody about Um, and again it's not necessarily adversarial it's something that we are talking through a conversation together she's explaining a concept to me and it's through that back and forth, the ability to ask questions, that the concept becomes uh, clearer that we both learn in the process. So that is really nicely ties into not just kind of thinking through how these machines might learn um, and why something like a dr- self-driving car would you'd want to have these different parts, these different systems within the the car communicating to each other in the way that Leilani described, but also that we need to be doing that ourselves in our community when we're talking about these issues, that we need to be having conversations across disciplines. Again, I think this process of explaining these different concepts to each other can help us learn and grapple with these different problems and issues. And this gets us to what Leilani was bringing us into in this conversation, which is the questions of auditing and stress testing systems so that we can reduce problems like bias and ensure better fairness and also, again, reduce harms and risks and make things safer and make things more trustworthy for people and communities to be able to, again, be ensured that these technologies are not going to be harmful. And I, I really appreciate, appreciated Leilani's focus on those concerns and her openness to these interdisciplinary conversations. 